So here's what we are doing for the next eight, tonight and then the seven weeks after, is you may or may not know, and it's not that important if you do or do not, that Thursday was January 6th, which is the Epiphany. And that's the celebration that um, is the remembrance that Christ, when he came, he was manifest to the nations, not just to Israel, but to the nations and the world. I'm not so much interested in celebrating king, the kings coming to see him. And the, I'm more interested in having this as a season of allowing and asking God to make Christ manifest in us to those around us, that we become the epiphanies of Christ. So um, we're doing the menorah to remember that we're called to be light and fruitfulness um, for these for the season of Epiphany, and we're looking at a series on prayer, which is one of the many means we are given by God to connect with Him and to grow His fruit. And I pray that through learning about prayer and looking at prayer, whether you're a seasoned warrior or a newbie or never done it, uh, that prayer would make Christ manifest in us. Eight weeks. At first, I was like, well, that's kind of a lot. And I filled it up. And then I started thinking, wait, I could do eight more and eight more. Um, and then my mom tells me, oh, that's cool. You're doing that. At our church, they live in Alabama. At our church, our pastor's doing a series of prayer on Elijah. I was like, wow, you could just do a whole series on Elijah. And then all the other men of prayer. And then the nine times Jesus prays in the Gospel of Luke. And you could see where this could go, right? 52-week <laughs> series on prayer. Uh, don't worry. We'll do this just for the season of Epiphany, which will end at Lent, which is in early, I think it's in early March. It doesn't matter at the moment. But um, that's the goal, all right? You guys with me? You guys going along? Um, huzzah. I don't even know what that means, but cool. <laughs> Let's pray. This is... Um, this is, by the way, this is adapted from Hebrews chapter 1, the very opening verses, powerful. Um, Father, long ago, you spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, you've spoken to us by your Son, whom you have appointed the heir of all things, through whom you also created the world. He is the radiance of your glory and the exact imprint of your nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So speak to us now through your son and uphold us by the word of his power that we may radiate your glory in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the fourth century in the Egyptian desert, this would have been... You guys remember Macarius? We looked at him one week a little bit ago. This, this era, this place, this Egyptian desert. In the fourth century, there was a monk who had devoted himself to prayer in this desert. And he was sort of feeling like he was hitting a ceiling. Like, I, I, I need to have uh, a superior tell me how to grow more in prayer. So he comes to a guy named Abba Joseph, Father Joseph, who is sort of the elder of a community. And he says... Abba Joseph, what must I do to excel in my prayer? And Abba Joseph simply stands up, raises his hands, and begins to pray. And all ten of his fingertips erupt in flames of fire. And then he just simply lowers his hands and tells young monk, If you will, 
you can become all fire. Coal is dusty. Coal is dark, dirty. It's messy. It's boring. Uh, Coal has nothing lovely. There's nothing attractive about it. Um, But you know what coal can do? Coal can burn. That's our series title, Becoming All Fire. If you will, you can become all fire. We are coal. The Spirit of God is fire. Prayer is where the two ignite. One could even say it's the job of coal to burn. It's useless sitting there, ugly and messy. But when coal is ignited with fire, it now serves its purpose and brings benefit, it brings light, it brings warmth. Prayer is where those two ignite. So what is prayer? The popular answer, maybe you're even thinking this in your head or you've heard this. I've heard this so many times. The popular answer is that prayer is talking with God. Ding, ding. Good answer. For a while, because here's the, 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 the answer is not complete. Um, because you can be talking to God, but there comes a point when you should be growing enough to realize that your toddler babble is not enough. Just talking to God is not all that prayer is. Prayer is not a one-way street where I dump everything and move on. Prayer is a two-way street. It's an engagement with the God of the universe. It's not just talking to God. Consider the way these people who have spent most of their lives in prayer, consider what they've said. Saint Theophan, the recluse, he was a Russian bishop in the 19th century. And this guy, by the way, he knows something about prayer because he spent a thousand days on a rock praying. He didn't leave that rock for a thousand days in prayer. This is what he said prayer is. He said, to pray is to stand before God, not necessarily physically, although that is often how old people did pray. To pray is to stand before God with the mind in the heart. And to go on standing before him day and night until the end of life. It's to stand before him with the mind and the heart. What that means is that everything you're praying is not just mental. You're not just gibbering words, but that the, that the words you're forming are meeting with the desires of the heart. So that these are becoming one and all of you is now engaged, standing before God fully present. That's how he defines prayer. And it's doing that to the end of your life. We'll talk about this later down the road, but your life should be a posture of standing before God. Not when you pray, but always in a posture standing before him with your head and your heart. Elder Emilianos, a Greek monk who actually passed away a few years ago, said that prayer is the journey of the soul to God. The purpose of this journey being to reach him and be united with him. And then St. John of Sinai, whom you've heard me quote many times because he's so quotable, sixth century monk, obviously from Sinai. um, He said, prayer is by its essence, communication and union with God and man. Simplest, beautiful, most powerful. Prayer is communication and union 
with God and man. It's coal and fire connecting. Why do we pray? I struggled with this in my 20s. In high school, as a teenager, if you're praying at all, it's usually for someone to like you back, to be popular, to be a starter on the baseball team, for direction on your career, right? There's like a way of praying as a teenager. Then you hit your 20s, and it's like, how am I supposed to pray like a grown-up? And you don't really know. And then you have all these philosophical questions that the 20s seem to just be racked with, because every 20-year-old knows everything, right? Like, okay, so if God knows everything... What am I, why am I telling him anything? Why pray at all? And I remember having this discussion with my friends. If God has already ordained whether or not you'll die when you go on that airplane, why pray for a safe travel? (laughs) And I remember questions like this just boggled me. What is prayer? I don't understand. I don't understand why we do this. I hadn't been told that prayer was about communion and union with God. Because then it would have made so much more sense. See, what I'm saying in other words is that prayer is not just me asking things and getting things from God. Prayer is resuming the dialogue that we lost in the Garden of Eden. Prayer is how we get back to that dialogue, walking with God in the cool of the day. Prayer is orienting our hearts and our desires to him and his life. This is bigger than just asking for help. That's a great prayer. Peter prayed that the Bible's full of help prayers. But prayer is also becoming one with our maker. Here's what Rankin Wilburn, he has, by the way, a really good book called Union with Christ. He's a current pastor. Rankin Wilburn said, the real point of prayer is not something, but someone. Isn't that so memorable? It's not something, my problem, it's someone, the presence. The real reward of prayer is not what we're asking God for. The real reward of prayer is communion with God. That's the reward. So much so that St. Evagrius, the solitary, just making some connections for you, because sometimes these are just names. He was a disciple of Macarius. St. Evagrius, the solitary, said this about prayer. He said, do not be distressed if you do not at once receive from God what you ask, because he wishes to give you something better to make you persevere in your prayer. For what is better than to enjoy the love of God and to be in communion with him? This is the purpose and the heart of prayer is to set ourselves before him and allow him to come and well, consume may not be the right word, but uh, 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 and blaze us with fire, with his presence. It's about us being reconnected to our creator. That's why we pray, and that's the purpose of prayer. Communion with God is not just the aim of prayer. It's the aim of life. So, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. These are staggering verses, by the way, so I just got to put them together so that you, like... 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness so that you may become partakers of his divine nature. How? Prayer is one of the ways to partake in the divine nature. If it's unifying with God, you're partaking. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Paul says, and we all with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How? Prayer is a primary means. And Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, that's communion, that's union, that's oneness. He in us and we in him. Um, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So prayer is the means of uniting ourselves with God so that Christ may be made manifest in us to the world. If you're not praying, you are a fish out of water. A Christian not in prayer is a fish not in water. Flopping around, gasping for life, reacting to every poke and prod. The good news is, brothers and sisters, that as much as in hearing this, we can begin to yearn for, burn for, desire union with God, the good news is that God is not indifferent to that desire. God is not like, oh, well, I mean, if they want, I will let them into my presence. Just stay there, though. There's a line here. Wash your hands. Um, God is not indifferent to our presence, nor is he hostile to our presence. He actually desires our presence and has made ways for us to access his presence at great cost, by the way. So that's what we're going to see tonight in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 is the baptism of Jesus. John the Baptist is showing up, and he, we have Isaiah quoted that he's the messenger preparing the way of the Lord, and he's preaching fire and brimstone to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the temple priests. They're all coming out to see the revival meeting that's happening out in that Judean desert by the Jordan River. And then he looks at them and he says, well, who brought the offspring of the serpent? <laughs> he calls them the brood of vipers. A better translation would be the offspring of the serpent. Because remember, God said that the um, seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent. He basically calls them out and he says, look, anyone and everyone who wants access to God again, because we're all sinners, we must be renewed. And so he's throwing baptisms and... Um, Jesus, of all wonders, appears to John, his cousin, to be baptized by John. Now, Matthew, there's a little exchange about who should do, who should dunk who. And John is persisting that Christ needs to baptize him. But Christ is like, no, let it be so, for this is how righteousness will be fulfilled. So John baptized Christ. So Christ comes, it's very short account with Christ in Luke. Um, but it's very important because Luke is the gospel of prayer. Nine times in Luke's gospel is Jesus found praying. And then in his part two, Acts, the church mirrors the prayers of Christ. The church is constantly found in prayer. Um, so this is the very first instance we see Jesus praying. It's Luke 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized... And was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. You want to feel the Spirit move in our community? 
have you felt the spirit move in bodily form? That's how a house gets shaken, friends. That's how the upper room at Pentecost was shaken. Bodily forms intense. The spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Christ comes to be baptized. Baffling, isn't it? When Christ entered the Jordan, it was not, this is the way we have to see this, it was not Christ who was baptized into the Jordan. It was the Jordan that was baptized into Christ. For when Christ came to his own, to redeem his own, when the creator came into creation, it wasn't he who's baptized into the world, but the world that's baptized into him. It's the world we just read in Colossians, invisible and visible, all things are being unified in him. When Christ comes to the Jordan, he doesn't need cleansing. The waters need cleansing. The people standing around need cleansing. Jerusalem needs cleansing. Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks needs cleansing. When the Son of God enters the Jordan, he is baptizing the world. That's what's happening. And then the heavens open because he has come and unified all things. The heavens are now open. The heavens that Adam and Eve shut are now open for us. And this happens when he prays. And because of Christ, the heavens are still open when we pray. He opened them. He's kept them open sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding and praying on our behalf. And when we pray, brothers and sisters, insofar as we pray in and through Christ, united with him, the heavens are open to us as well. For we who are baptized into him have been redeemed by him. And then there's this moment in which suddenly the suspicions that were echoing through the Bible become abundantly clear that God is one manifested in three persons. You see the Holy Spirit. Well, you see, of course, the Son, Christ, the Son, Jesus, coming into the water. But then you see the Holy Spirit descending on him, and then you hear the voice from heaven. Obviously, the third member of the Trinity, the Father, speaking, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. For the first time in scripture, it is clearly portrayed that God is three in one. And here it is, manifest for the world to see. And here we get to behold and see. Now, um, we've, done, we've done messages on the Trinity um, two last year. One at the beginning of last year and then one somewhere in the middle. So you can go back and get some more detail. I'm going to touch lightly on this. But because we have to be brought to speed, um, the Trinity is this. This is how we should define it. God is the eternal and mutual indwelling of three persons as one nature and one essence. God is the eternal and mutual indwelling of three persons. So these three persons are eternal and they're mutually indwelling each other as one nature and one essence. 
Now, three as one. We get kind of off means when we talk about um, the three are not three manifestations of one God. Um, or I should say, I should say they're not three modes of one God. We can look at God, the Trinity, and say, oh, they're so united that we basically absorb them all into one little, one little person. And from there, we say, okay, sometimes this God expresses himself as father. Sometimes he's in the mode of son, and sometimes he's doing the spirit thing. That would be compressing him into an absorption. But see, what we're saying is they are um, eternally and mutually indwelling each other, which means father is indwelling the son while the son is indwelling the father in such a way that they don't absorb one another. The, father, the son could indwell the father to the point that the son vanishes, but the son is dwelling in the father while the father dwells in the son. So there's this balance of both. But then you have to take the concept and say the Father's dwelling the Spirit while the Spirit's indwelling the Father, and the Spirit's indwelling the Son while the Son's indwelling the Spirit, so that all of them are equally indwelling one another without absorbing or evaporating or eliminating each other. What this is, is it's perfect adoration, it's perfect praise, it's perfect glory being bestowed from each member to the other member in an ongoing movement so that they're still themselves while making each other more of each other. Never selfishly just grabbing and receiving and poof, you're gone. But continually this mutual indwelling is where both are giving and both are receiving. I should say all three are giving and receiving at once. That's how you also become one nature and one essence is when you're so mutually shared with one another, you're three persons in a relationship but possessing the same exact nature and essence. Some people like to look at the Trinity as three persons who are complete individuals who are only one in harmony because they agree on things. That's not mutual indwelling, though. Mutual indwelling means that God is the eternal and mutual indwelling of three persons as one nature and one essence, encircling one another endlessly with praise, glory, and adoration and love. Okay, so I say that. That's our crash course. Like that. <laughs> Pretty condensed, okay? Um, so I hope you're tracking to a degree that there is a relationship happening in the Trinity. Now, again, there's, there's other messages you can go look up where we've done this in more detail. Um, the reason for looking at this and the reason that this matters is because what it tells us is that God is relational. He, in his essence, is relational. He's not just sitting somewhere distant, detached, and humming by himself in some static, stagnant place. He is movement. He is action. He's, as C.S. Lewis says, he's dynamic. This is what Lewis says. He says that Christians believe that the living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. He's saying something so compact, which you can unpack, and we did in another message about the creation of the universe being a result of the love of the Trinity for itself. It's overflow. The love is being poured out mutually so heavily that it spills out and makes creation. 
So Christians believe that the living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. And that, by the way, is perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions. It is that in Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of dance. Almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. God is overflowing with life. And that abundance and overflowing of life is what we call his presence. It overflows, it spills out, it wants to find his creatures. He desires this. So when Jesus is baptized, we see the triune God manifesting himself, saying, yes, this is my son. Bring the lost sons and daughters. Bring them home. Okay, so prayer. Prayer baptizes us in God's presence. The reason we took a moment to look at the Trinity is because prayer is our baptism into this triune life of God. Jesus is baptized. He prays, then the heavens are opened, and we see the Trinity in action. We see him among the other members. Prayer baptizes you and me. It immerses us. It pulls us and draws us in to the life of God. So as the Jordan was baptized into Christ, prayer baptizes us into the life of God. We pray. The reason we pray My 20-year-old self should have been told that the reason we pray is so that we can commune with God and become one with his life. That's why we pray. Now, sometimes there are needs that we need help from beyond ourselves, but the primary and the first purpose we pray, you can pray if there's not a single problem in your life. We pray so that we can have communion with God and become one in his life, so that we can be baptized in the Trinity. St. Sophrony, a Russian monk who actually served in England, (laughs) says that through prayer, we enter into communion with him that was before all worlds. Or put another way, he says, life, the life of the self-existing God flows into us through the channel of prayer. So as Christ steps into the Jordan and the Jordan is flowing into him, we step into prayer and the life of the eternal, excellently happy, forever joyful, perfectly complete God is flowing into us. Why don't we pray more? When we pray, I want to close with two, two things that happen when we pray. When we pray, and they're sort of repetitive because we're just unpacking this. But when we pray, we participate in the Trinity. Uh, just to put this right there in the scripture for you, the heavens, like Christ, when we pray, the heavens are open to us, and we receive the Holy Spirit, and we hear the voice of the Father. 
I cannot be a prayerless Christian and engage in the darkness of the world full of the life of the Spirit. It doesn't happen. I am ignited through the interaction with the Godhead in prayer. My interaction with that is what gives me with what gives life to the spirit within me. This fire of the spirit is inflamed in prayer. But also in prayer, we hear the voice of the father. And this is just as important as him hearing our voice in praise and thanksgiving and confession and in supplication for our needs is that we in return hear the voice of the father. That when I step into that stream of prayer, yes, I'm full of the spirit. Yes, I'm united with Christ. But the father is speaking over you and me that same word he's speaking over Christ because we're in Christ. This is my son. This is my daughter. This is my child with whom I am well pleased. And you and I, frankly, this whole world needs to hear those words at the start of every day. Lest we go out and in an overambitious and overzealous desire to make a name for ourselves, we conquer neighbor and the world and destroy creation and forget God in order to make a name for ourselves. The builders of the Tower of Babel never heard, these are my children with whom I'm well pleased. That's why they built the tower. Christ heard the words, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And Christ went as a walking embodiment of God's glory. Yes, I know he's a son of God. It's not fair to the fullest extent. However, if we're taking the Bible seriously, we are also being made into sons and daughters of God so that we live just as Christ lived on this earth. Are you ready? Are you willing to embody the presence of God? C.S. Lewis said this. I said, when we pray, we participate in the Trinity. This is what Lewis said. And it's so funny how, like, I, I know, like, these things are real, and then I go back and read old books, which I've read so many times, and some for not for a while, and I'm like, what? They said that. I'm like, oh, wow, okay, like, things get inside of you, don't they? <laughs> Lewis said this, and this is so, this is so interesting. Um, he's talking about when a Christian prays. He says this, God is the thing to which he is praying. He's the goal he is trying to reach. But God is also the thing inside him which is pushing him on, the motive to pray. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. So that the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little room where an ordinary little man is saying his prayers. The man is being caught up into the higher kinds of life, what I called Zoe, that's the Greek word for eternal life, what I called Zoe or spiritual life. He is being pulled into God by God while still, while still remaining himself. That last part is so important because Eastern mysticism and the Eastern religions talk about being pulled into the great being, but you get absorbed into the great being and you are no longer you. The gospel is about God bringing us back home to our maker so that we can be the creatures he made us to be. And later Lewis says, we are never more ourselves than when we are pulled into God. When we pray, we participate in the, tri- in the Trinity's life Second, when we pray, we become extensions of his presence. So the Trinity 
no member of the Trinity gets lost or absorbed into the other because they're mutually pouring into each other. The Father's in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. The Son is in the Spirit, and the Spirit's in the Son. And the Father's in the Spirit, and the Spirit's in the Father, right? So there's constant, they, they remain themselves while being one with each other. This is what happens in prayer. God is in me, and I am in God. It's mutual indwelling, so much so that I am being pulled up into the life of God. I am becoming, in, I'm, I am being drawn up into the center of this dynamic pulsating drama activity dance that Lewis describes. And so if I am being pulled into God and God is in me, I get to walk with this ongoing communion. I get to walk as his presence into the world. Without being absorbed, without being annihilated, I'm becoming more real, more myself. I hate to use a phrase because the Eastern religions use it, but, I'm, but it's true. I'm becoming my true self, not their version of it, but the version God has in mind for me. An illustration of this is the burning bush. You might remember that it says in Exodus 3, Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. (laughs) That's us in prayer drawn into the life of God in his presence. We are set on fire by God's life, set on fire by his presence, by his energy, by his power, by his being. And yet we are not consumed. We are not burned. We are not destroyed. We are not absorbed into the infinite nothingness. We remain a bush. Yes, I know you wanted to hear something better. You're just a bush. We remain unburned, unconsumed. And see, that's the beauty of this, is that you are on fire by God, yet you are not just a bush. You're a bush that people turn aside and say, what is going on here? I must look into this. I must see. See, prayer can feel so private that it doesn't matter. Prayer can feel so corporate with just Christians that it doesn't matter. Are you kidding If you are set aflame by the presence of God, you will matter wherever you go. And that the man who watched sheep and bushes for a living would even turn his head at a different bush. Because this one burns, but is not burned. 